Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you can open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 16. Um, Reformation Sunday, we're going to uh, part from the uh, Abraham series uh, just this Sunday. Matthew 16, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 17. That'll be on page 480 of the paperback Bibles, which are underneath the chair. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab one of those paperback Bibles, open to page 480, Matthew 16. One thing um, that I know that people are inclined to do and really love to do is they love to say what they believe. Uh, People like to give their opinions. And uh, one way you can know that is just by looking at the various ways people express their beliefs. Uh, How many t-shirts that you see that have uh, some kind of a slogan on it? Uh, Whatever slogan is there, you know, can be an expression of belief. Tax the rich, for instance, we might see on a person's t-shirt. As you're driving down the street, you might get behind a car and you see a bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker might say something like, hate is not a family value. That's on there because that's what those people believe, and they want you to know that, so they have a bumper sticker on their car. Uh, I've been um, impressed with how many yard signs I see today. Uh, You probably all know what it's like in your neighborhood, probably a number of neighbors have signs in their yard declaring what they believe. Sometimes it'll be a series of statements, sometimes it might say something like Black Lives Matter, that's something that they believe, that they cherish, they want you to know that, and so they put the sign in their yard. All of these are statements of belief. In other words, all of these are basically creeds. The word creed comes from the Latin credo. Credo just simply means I believe. When you see a bumper sticker, a t-shirt with a slogan, a yard sign in the yard, all of those people are making creedal statements. They like to say what they believe. Now today's Reformation Sunday, as has been pointed out, uh, this is the day on October 31st, which happens to fall on a Sunday this year, but back in 1517 is when the Reformation was officially launched, although a lot of things were happening leading up to that, but kind of culminated, as Pastor Brian mentioned a moment ago, in the action of Martin Luther to nail his 95 theses. They were kind of a protest against what was happening in the church at that time, because in the Catholic Church, the gospel had basically been lost. The free grace of the love of God in Christ had been obscured in a number of ways, and Luther and a number of others had come to the end of their patience, and so they offered up a protest, and as a result of that, the Protestant church was launched. I don't know if you've noticed that in that word Protestant, the word protest is there, and that's really what the Reformation was all about. One thing that you need to know or remember, uh, it's kind of obvious, I guess, but it might get past us, and that is before the Reformation, there was really only one church, and it was the Roman Catholic Church. You didn't have the opportunity to choose whether you wanted to go to the Baptist Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Pentecostal Church or the Lutheran Church, because none of those churches existed before the Reformation. It was the Roman Catholic Church. That was your choice. And so as a result of the Reformation, all of these different churches begin to emerge in contrast to 
the Roman Catholic Church. And one thing that these churches um, decided to do in order to define themselves against the Roman Catholic Church and in contrast to one another is they wrote creeds. They wrote confessions. They wrote statements of what they believed. And so one of the legacies of the Reformation is a great outpouring of confessions and creeds. And so, uh, for instance, <clears throat> the Augsburg Confession held by Lutherans even today, 1530, Heidelberg Catechism held by many of the Reformed churches even today, again, 1563, 39 Articles, the Anglican Confession of Faith in 1571, <clears throat> and then the Westminster Confession written many years later, believed by Presbyterian churches and finished uh, 15, 1647, I think, actually. Um, and so, the, we, we as Protestants celebrate the Reformation, we, we cherish the Reformation, and one thing that we kind of overlook, though, is this aspect of the Reformation, that is the production of these creeds and confessions. And so what I want to do today, here on Reformation Sunday, is make for you the case for creeds. Because here's one of the ironic things, is that sometimes people who are most strongly against confessions and creeds are Christians, <laughs> and even Protestant Christians, not realizing apparently that their theological heritage is rooted very much in creeds and confessions. So what people will often say is, you know, these creeds, they're man-made documents. They're not reliable. They lead to dry formalism just the reciting of these words. They're, they were written by dead white men. They can't speak to us today. And after all, no creed but the Bible. All I hold to is the Scriptures. I don't need creeds. Very common things that you might hear even spoken by Christians today. <clears throat> so, uh, we're going to look at a lot of different Scripture passages today to make this case for creeds. Um, typically here at New Life, we like to go through a book of the Bible. Today's different. Um, topical sermon, very topical. We're going to begin here in Matthew, but I'm going to be showing you a lot of passages from the Scriptures. But um, this passage of Matthew will get us started. So why don't we stand, if you're able, let me read Matthew 16, 13 through 17. And uh, this is a conversation between Jesus and Peter, the Apostle Peter. Uh, it's a very important point in the Gospel of Matthew, a, a very central kind of climactic point here, this conversation, and here's how it goes. It says in verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Holy Spirit, come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, let me just talk about this passage here just briefly, and then we'll get into the case for creeds. But again, I think this sets us up for understanding the importance of creeds. Here, here's Peter. Uh, Peter is a, a disciple of Jesus. 
And Peter's been spending much time with Jesus. Peter has witnessed Jesus' teaching. He has witnessed Jesus' healing. He has witnessed Jesus perform miracles. He's been close to Jesus for uh, a considerable amount of time. And now here in Matthew 16, Jesus has a question for Peter and the disciples. And the question is here in verse 15, asking them, who do you say I am? In other words, what do you believe? It's really another way of uh, asking that question. In particular, what do you believe about me? Now, think about this. When Jesus asked this question, do you think that Jesus is inquiring for information here? In other words, is Jesus trying to find out something that he doesn't know? I mean, that can't really be the case, right? Because in verse 17, it says that whatever it is that Peter knows, it was revealed to him by the Father. Jesus himself, the God-man, certainly knows what Peter thinks, what he believes. Jesus knows exactly what Peter is going to say. Jesus is not trying to get information that he doesn't know. He's not ignorant of this. So why is he asking? Why does he pose this question to Peter and the disciples? And I think the answer is because he wants to hear Peter say it. He wants the disciples to proclaim it. He wants to hear them say what they believe. And what Peter says is very clear in verse 15. Um, you are the, excuse me, verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Friends, that right there is a, is a creedal statement. It's a theological statement. He's saying you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You're the one we've been waiting for. You know, in Abraham, we've been hearing all of these uh, discussions about these promises of a descendant who is coming one day. I mean, that was hundreds of years ago. What Peter is saying is finally the, the, the descendant of the woman, the descendant of Abraham, the son of David, the one we've been waiting for centuries for. He's here, and it's Jesus and Peter is saying, this is what I believe. You are the one. You're the son of the living God. It's a doctrinal statement. It's a creedal statement. And this is what Jesus wants to hear. Now, there is certainly more to be said about what a Christian should believe than just this. But we've got to remember that we're still here in the middle of the gospel. A lot is left to happen here, right? I mean, Jesus is going to go on. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected. There's more to happen that Peter doesn't really know about yet. And then we're going to get to the New Testament, and then we're going to see Paul in particular, who's going to expand upon the meaning of what Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection, giving us much profound detail. And after that, after the apostles are dead, what's going to happen is the church is then going to rise up, and they're going to be writing their own statements, unpacking even further what has been revealed to us in the Scriptures. And in all of these cases, what we have are declarations, statements of what the Bible teaches, what Jesus did, what Christians should believe. But for our purposes here, as we look at Matthew 16, we should realize that being a Christian is not just believing Jesus and having him tucked away in secret in our heart in some deep, dark place where nobody knows. The part of being a Christian is confessing it and saying it out loud, for others to hear. Look at what um, 
It says in several places in the New Testament, Romans 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 1 John 2, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 1 Timothy 6, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. A confession, a spoken out loud declaration of what somebody believes in the presence of other people. It seems to be something that's expected. Now, does this mean you have to say these magical words out loud like abracadabra and then you go to heaven? That's not the point. (laughs) You do need to believe in Jesus and receive him into your heart. That's true as far as it goes. But in the scriptures, there seems to be this expectation of a confession. And so that just kind of lays the groundwork for a biblical case for confessions, which we'll get into. But let's, uh, let's look first at um, the case against creeds. Uh, what are some reasons that people use to say that creeds, confessions, etc., are uh, not necessary, not important? And by the way, just, I should say the obvious thing here, I guess, is that we here at New Life are a confessional church. So that, that's one of the words we can use to describe us. We're confessional. Are we evangelical? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess so. We're kind of, we're, we're, we're reformed, yeah, yeah. We're, we're Presbyterian, but we're confessional. And, and that's something that we proclaim without apology, <laughs> that this is a good thing. It doesn't mean you have to believe everything in our confessional standards in order to go to church here or even to become a member of the church here. But we want you to know this is what we believe. It's contained in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Presbyterian Confession that I put on the screen a little while ago. But before we get into a biblical case for creeds, what is the case against creeds? What do people often say? And one thing is this. Here's an argument. Creeds are too human. That is, they're, they're written by men, sinful, fallible men. They're, they're, they're not the same as Scripture. They're prone to error and misjudgment. They're a product of their time. They're unreliable. Now, let it be fully acknowledged that we don't believe that creeds are inerrant. We don't believe that they're inspired in the same way that Scripture is inspired. We don't believe that they hold the same authority as Scripture. All creeds and confessions fall underneath, they're subordinate to the authority of Scripture, and even the confessions themselves state that. So here's Westminster Confession, chapter 1. The supreme judge by whom all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, that would refer to creeds and confessions, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. That's the confession. The confession itself is placing itself under the authority of Scripture. But consider, friends, how often we use mere human words to conduct worship here. We have prayers every Sunday that are not directly from the Bible. We sing songs. We sing hymns that are not directly from the Bible. A Mighty Fortress, we sang that this morning, this this highly revered hymn 
uh, in the church, rightfully so. There's scripture in it, but it's not directly from the scriptures. We don't have any problems singing it. The words I'm using right now are not words directly out of the Bible. Preachers are called to use their words to tell you what the Bible says. We don't We might say no creed but the Bible, but we don't say no prayers but prayers in the Bible. You you use your own words. It's legitimate to use your own words. If somebody asked you, what does the Bible teach? A non-believer asked you that. What does the Bible teach? What would you do? Would you open up to Genesis 1-1 and just start reading the entire Bible to them? Well, of course not. What you would say is, here's what the Bible teaches. God created the world. He created men and women upright, but they fell, rebelled against their creator. They fell into sin. The world has been ruined as a result of that, but God had mercy. He sent his son. Jesus came into the world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He's risen from the dead and then offers salvation to anyone who would place faith in him. And he's coming one day at the end to conclude all history and to judge all mankind and to bring his people into an eternal state of bliss on the new heavens and the new earth. Now, was that a scripture verse that I just said to you? No. But was it a decent summary of what the Bible teaches? I would say Yes, you might quibble with a few ways that I said some things, but I used human words to summarize the scriptures, and that's what creeds do. So to say that creeds are merely human is, I don't think, persuasive. But here's another argument. Creeds are too old. They're so old. They're so ancient. The Westminster Confession of Faith is around 400 years old. The Apostles' Creed Apostles and Nicene Creed, by the way, that we recite here on Communion Sundays were not Reformational creeds. Those were written many centuries earlier. The Apostles' Creed is about 1,700 years old. And so there's a kind of a view in our culture which just says, you know, if it's old, it's bad. If it's new, it's good. You know, we're into what is trendy. We're into what is hot right now. What is popular? What are people talking about today? We think in the terms of present and future and tend to neglect past. And I think that's a bad thing. Uh, C.S. Lewis coined this phrase called chronological snobbery, which is this kind of self-righteous attitude of considering that the ancient is always inferior to the present, a, a snobbery based in the present and the future. Look what Jeremiah says in chapter 6. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Friends, we are impoverished as a nation, as a people, and as a church to the degree that we forget and dismiss the past. So the fact that creeds are old that ought to actually draw our attention to them, that we might benefit from the wisdom of those who have come before us, that we could stand on the shoulders of giants that God has raised up in our past. And then lastly, creeds are too male. I feel like I need to mention this. I'm not sure that maybe anybody in this congregation would say this, but this is more of a popular kind of thing to say, um, given our current cultural climate, which is that the creeds were written by white, European, British men, and so therefore they are limited, they're biased, they can't really speak to our issues today, and so they should be dismissed. 
And I would just say, friends, you know, of course, we should listen to women and men, even as they speak from the Bible and speak theologically. We should listen, listen to the rich and the poor. We should listen to people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues throughout the world. Our ears should be open to hear their perspective. That is true. But friends, the truths that are declared in the Bible are universal. The Bible says that we're all made in the image of God. We are all fallen. We have all inherited a sin nature from Adam, and we all need a Savior. And the only Savior for any of us is Jesus Christ. That's common to every single person, friends. That's not limited to a gender group or a specific ethnicity. And so as we think about theological statements, we should not weigh them by the skin color of the person who said them, but by their fidelity to Scripture. And we should do that with all confessions and creeds as well. So there's many other objections, friends, of course, that I could bring up here, but let's just settle with those three, and then let's dismiss all three of them because they are not persuasive. Friends, everyone has a creed. You, you have a creed. It might not be written down so that I can look at it and examine it, but you've got a creed. You've got some kind of slogan, some kind of baseline philosophy that you hang on to. Honesty is the best policy. Do your best. What goes around comes around. Just do it. I mean, I don't know what it is, but you have a creed. You have some way of living, something that guides you. So let's not act like creeds aren't relevant. They, they are, as our prevalent yard signs today declare. But one of your creeds might be, if you're still kind of resisting this, is I just believe the Bible. That's enough for me. I believe the Bible. Good for you, that's great. But what does the Bible say? That's my question to you. What does it say? And as soon as you start telling me what it says, you're talking about a confession or a creed. So, let's consider the biblical case for creeds. Can we look to the scriptures to find some good reason for having confessions in, a creed, in creeds? And I think there is. The first thing is this. Creeds are found in the Bible. Did you know that? There are creeds in the Bible. Not, not as lengthy as the Westminster Confession and other creeds and confessions that we recite today, but, but they're there. Here is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema. This is what um, Jews confess on a daily basis, faithful Jews even to this day. The purpose of this creed in Moses' day when this was written was to set a contrast between the beliefs of ancient Israel and the polytheists who lived all around them and believed in many, many gods. This was a radical statement at that time, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, to say there aren't many gods, there's one God. And so this was passed down. There's this summary of what the Jewish nation believed. It was a creed. Uh, here's another example, 1 Timothy 1.15. <clears throat> it says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But notice how this begins. The saying. What's he talking about there? 
There's a saying, in fact, when Paul writes throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, there's like four or five other times where he talks about the saying. The saying is trustworthy. There's these sayings that are being passed down that have been agreed upon. In this case, the saying is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a short, pithy, concise, doctrinal summary. It's a saying that Paul apparently believes that his readers are going to know about. It's a saying that's been passed around. It's a saying that's been accepted. In other words, it's a creed. It's a confession that the Christians had agreed upon in Paul's day. Another example similar to that, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. But notice how Paul says this. He says, I am delivering it to you, Corinthians, first importance, what I received. So this is not something that Paul has invented by himself. It's not this new idea that came, he came up with. There's some accepted language, an accepted doctrinal summary that has been given to him, and now he's passing it on to others. And that doctrinal summary is this, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It actually goes on for a few more verses after that. There's an accepted summary statement circulating through the church that Paul is passing on. It's a creed. Now let me clarify, you know, there obviously is a difference. These are creeds that are recorded in the Scriptures, so they're part of the inspired, inerrant record of Scripture. We don't describe the Westminster Confession or the Nicene and Apostles' Creed that way. They're not inspired documents. That's, that's true. There is a difference, but the point I'm simply making is that creeds are biblical. They're in the Bible, even though there's a difference between these creeds and the ones that were written after the Apostles'. So creeds are in the Bible. One other thing that I want to tell you, creeds are encouraged in the Bible. They're encouraged merely by being in the Bible, but there are other passages that would suggest to us that we should have confessions and creeds in our possession. And so here's an example of that, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Hold to the traditions. He's not saying hold to the Scripture that you were taught by us. Of course, Paul would believe that and would say that. Yes, that's true. Hold to the Scriptures. But in this case, he's saying hold to the traditions, which is something apparently distinct from, different than the Scriptures hold to these things. They were spoken by some of us. They were written down. The implication is that there's these traditional sayings, summaries of doctrinal content, descriptions of the gospel that have been passed on throughout the church and that Paul is speaking and promoting in this passage. It's a creed. It's a confession. One last example, Jude verse 3 I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, notice that phrase, the faith. It's different than faith. 
He's not saying contend for faith. He's not talking about personal, private faith. He's talking about the faith. And when you see the phrase, the faith, in the New Testament, what that's talking about is a recognized body of teaching that the church had accepted, and again, which was circulating in the church and handed down from one generation to another. And Jude says we need to be contending for that faith. So friends, I think the Bible makes the case for creeds. We could go on. I can show you other creeds in the Scriptures and other passages that would seem to suggest an encouragement to hold tight to summaries of Christian doctrine. Now, some questions still might arise, maybe going back to the case against creeds. Some of you might say, yeah, but isn't it true that creeds turn into dry formalism? We sit there and we say these creeds and we just go through the same thing. We say the same thing all the time. Can they become just empty rituals? Yeah, that's true. Absolutely, they can. But that's not the fault of the creeds. That's your fault. That's my fault. If we can't get engaged with confessions and creeds that are laying out for us the great eternal truths of the gospel, that's not the creeds' fault. So, yes, they can turn into dry formalism, but they don't need to. Another question you might have is, can creeds and confessions be given too much authority? And yes, that absolutely can happen. And in fact, one of the reasons for the Reformation is that in the Roman Catholic Church, there were certain non-scriptural traditions that kind of grew up alongside the Bible and shared equal authority and began to confuse people and dilute the gospel. That was a problem. Tradition, confessions, taking too high of a place of priority. Yes, it can be a problem. But let me say to you again, friends, Scripture first. Scripture's the authority. I don't think I can say that too many times. There's no creed that has more authority than the Bible. Any creed that's out of accord with the Bible, don't believe it. We should amend creeds if they are found to be unbiblical. Scripture first. But again, friends, here's my question. When you say, I disbelieve the Bible, what do you believe the Bible teaches? That's why we've got to have confessions. What, what do you believe? You know, the Mormons believe the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses believe the Bible. All sorts of cults believe the Bible. Lots of people believe the Bible. But they don't necessarily believe the Bible in the same way that you and I do. In other words, going back to our Matthew passage, when Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that he is? Who's Jesus? Who do you say that he is? You think just anything you happen to say is going to be correct? People have all sorts of different ideas about how to answer that question. Let me share with you what the confession says. Westminster Confession 8, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. Do you believe in that Jesus? <laughs> That's the Jesus that saves. The Jesus who's just a teacher, the Jesus who's just the starter of a world religion, the Jesus who just shows, just gives you comfort in hard times, the Jesus who just happens to be with you as you go through life, those are not Jesuses that save. This is the Jesus that saves. And our confession tells us this, and we can rally around this and give thanks to God. 
So that's the biblical case for creeds. So let's consider one other thing, and that is the practical benefits of creeds. How should they be used in our church, in our homes today? And by the way, let me just show this to you. This might be a new topic for you. Um, For some, this is a brand new kind of idea, the idea that a Christian ought to be confessional or ought to take uh, give high regard to the confessions and creeds that have come before. So here's a few books that I would recommend uh, to you. The Creedal Imperative on the left by Carl Truman, very, very good book. Uh, know the Creeds and Councils, Justin Holcomb. The Need for Creeds Today by John Fesco. Go to Amazon, get those books for Christmas and read them. I recommend them to you. So how should creeds be used? Four quick things here. First of all, creeds serve as helpful teaching tools. What is the Great Commission? Jesus tells us, go and make disciples of all nations and teach them all that I have commanded them. Everything that Jesus has commanded, we are to teach, we are to make disciples. That is our responsibility as a church, and the creeds and confessions and catechisms provide a great tool for that to happen. And you will notice that that's what we do here at New Life. We're a confessional church, and so uh, on Sunday mornings, we recite the Nicene and Apostles' Creeds. Um, You will notice Pastor Brian um, referring to the Westminster Catechism before we go to communion. Uh, Our equipped groups are making use of catechism questions in order to uh, get doctrinal content summarized. Um, Andrew and Ashley are both seeking to incorporate the use of catechism with our junior and senior high and and our children. This is what churches ought to be doing, passing down their tradition, using this for the purpose it was intended, that is, to teach at home. What a great tool this is. If you're not really sure where to go in terms of leading a family devotion, get the Westminster Shorter Catechism and just do one question a night or one question a morning or whatever happens to work for you. Catechism, by the way, a little different than the confession. The confession is a statement of beliefs. The catechism is a question and answer format summarizing what the confession said, but written in a question and answer format in order to aid in teaching. Ask the question, get the answer. I recommend that for home devotions, family devotions. Second thing I would say, creeds foster unity in the church. They foster unity in the church. They give us something to rally around, something that holds us together, something we can say, yes, this is what we believe together. I was really shocked to find this New York Times article that came out just this last week, and the the headline of the article said that the word evangelical is now being known as being synonymous with Republican. And, And so people are beginning to think that if they're Republican, they're evangelical. If they're evangelical, they're they're Republican. And in fact, the article said that there are Mormons and even Muslims who consider themselves evangelical because they vote Republican. Muslims, I'm Republican, therefore I'm evangelical. So are we united with Muslims because they call ourselves evangelicals and we do too? I mean, how do we... How do we resolve that? I mean, I think the question that begs is, well, what is an evangelical? What is an evangelical belief? Do you know? How do we know? I mean, do they have a statement of faith? Do they have, do evangelicals have a confession? 
And you know, I, I don't really think that exists. You know, I gave you the list of confessions earlier for the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Reformed and the Anglicans. This is why it's so important for a body to declare what it believes. I don't think any Muslims are gonna say I'm a Reformed Presbyterian. They're just not gonna say that because our confessions make it very clear what we think. Creeds bind us together. Here's what Carl Truman says in his book. It is not what distinguishes me from my fellow human beings, which is really significant. It is what unites me to them. That is why a common confession is a good thing. It makes the point that my faith is the faith of the other people in the church, both today and throughout the ages. I mean, that's just an astonishing thing to consider. When you think about reciting the confession, just think of People, Christians all throughout the world and other countries today saying the same thing, Nigerians and Chinese and Brazilians confessing the exact same thing. Think about people in the 1400s, in the 1200s, in the 900s, in the 800s reciting these very same creeds that we're reciting today. Of course, pre-Reformation creeds would not be reciting the Reformation, but the Apostles and Nicene creeds have been recited for centuries and centuries. There's a wonderful unity that comes from reciting the creeds. Third thing, creeds help to preserve the gospel. Friends, this is our task as a church. We are to make disciples, but according to 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, the church is the pillar of the truth. We have been we, we are caretakers of the gospel. That's, that's our mission on this earth. God has entrusted to us the purity of the gospel. We are supposed to proclaim it and guard it and maintain its purity. That's one of our jobs. And confessions help us to do that because what we mean by the gospel is summarized there. It also keeps us from getting sidetracked on the many kind of hot topic cultural issues that rise up and the world tells us that we need to be thinking this and doing that, a really good exercise is to go back to the confessions. Have, has the church centuries before been dealing with this? We can find help in what they have to say and we can also get ourselves recalibrated and realizing that if the confessions aren't covering this, it might not be something that ought to concern us too much because the confessions are giving us the centrality of the gospel truths that have stood the test of time. So creeds help us preserve the gospel. They keep us from getting sidetracked onto non-essential issues. And then the last thing, friends, is that creeds empower our witness to the world. Friends, when we recite the creeds here, Nicene and Apostles, I think we stand up to recite those creeds, don't we? Actually, I can't remember, but we, we should if we don't. So we, we, we stand up and we recite the creed and there's something important in what we're doing. We're not just standing to recite the creed, we are taking a stand in the, in the world. And friends, if you cannot take a stand and recite what you believe in the presence of Christians, how are you gonna do it in the presence of non-Christians? How are you gonna do it in a room full of unbelievers if you can't do it here? This is what we're doing when we recite the creeds. We're, 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 we're practicing what it is to take a stand. This is what we believe. I love what uh, Michael Reeves says. 
We've never needed confessions more, even as we witness the extraordinary doctrinal retreat of the church in the face of an increasingly aggressive culture. For God's people to remain loyal to what God has said, they will need confessions that dare to take a stand. And that's what the confessions do. That's what Martin Luther did, actually. One of the most famous stories about Martin Luther and the Reformation is that he had written all these documents explaining his take on the free grace of the gospel and challenging a corrupt church, and he was called upon to recant that before a church council in 1521. And he said, my conscience is bound by Scripture. Here I stand. I can do no other. It's one of the most famous quotes from Martin Luther, taking a stand on the gospel. And when we recite creeds and confessions, we're doing the same thing. And the only proper way for us to conclude this message is to take a stand. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and let's recite the Nicene Creed together. Not a Reformational Creed, that's right, written before the Reformation, uh, but still a creed recited by all churches, all Christian churches throughout all the ages. So let's take a stand. Christians, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I'm going to ask the band to come forward, and I'll close us in prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, Lord, you have revealed yourself to us on the pages of your word, and we are grateful for that, Lord. We are also grateful for those you have raised up throughout history to summarize the teachings of your word, that we might teach our children and teach our churches, that the gospel might be clear to us, and that we might take a stand before a watching world. So help us, Lord, to always keep Scripture supreme in our life and in our church, but Lord, help us also to make good use of those creeds and confessions that have been given to your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.